You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Melinovsky. For the American poet Ariana Raines, witnessing her family fall apart became a defining moment of her journey into literature. My body went into language, and the language came into me in this way that made it possible for me to survive. When Ariana's mother, who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, moved into her college dorm room, it created such physical limitations that she had nowhere to go but literature. It's hard to explain. It was like I was thrust into not just writing, but also I had this really profound, almost like penetrating experience of literature for the first time. It was like it was the only place I could go because I had no physical space from this catastrophe. In this intimate portrait, Reigns, who's been named one of the most crucial voices of her generation, shares the deeply personal circumstances that have shaped her relationship to language. And she talks about the ability of language to distort reality, but also its power to anchor us in reality. To the reader. A couple of weeks after Hurricane Sandy, I found myself on my knees sobbing before an image of the Black Virgin of Chekhostova, known in Haiti as Ezili Dantor. This image had been given to me by a gay priest I'd met a short while before. One long, pleasant night we spent talking and huffing meth during a special period in my life. My heart had recently cracked open. Fear had departed me. I felt my middling capacities and medium looks beginning to become penetrated by drops of what I had always wanted, but still, even today, cannot name. You can't be closed in literature. It opens you. And so it's a way, it's a way of entering a space where you're in very, very profound intimacy with another consciousness. Writing is an extremely, extremely intimate art. And as anyone knows who's ever loved a, a book, and of course reading is, you know, there's, it's not the only art form out there. But when, if you really, really want to get down deep into a person, there isn't really anything like it. And I love all the other arts. And I, I, I adore music. And music, of course, penetrates you completely. But to get into the, the deepest levels of experience, that, that we have, um, it, it comes from deep inside people. And so that is a joy and that will open you instead of close you. And there's so much happening that's pouring into us every second through all kinds of uh, channels. And so much of it is, is cacophonous and highly disturbing and, and has a kind of um, damaging effect on the brain. I mean, it, it sort of harms the imagination sometimes. It's stupefying, just sort of metabolizing reality. And a lot of people are freaking out um, as a result. And some of the people freaking out look crazy, and some of them look sane, but they're not, you know? And we all know that. We all know that. Uh, so what's interesting about poetry is it's something that everyone can practice, you know? And 
it's a mirror. It allows you to reflect on your state. And sometimes things come through that mirror that are really uh, unusual. And I think that there's also in every second, there's like miracles happening. And we don't perceive them for the most part. But I think um, we need this connection in order to survive, because it's not just a matter of physical survival. We have to survive creatively if we're going to be able to manage any of this. And, and you can't just escape reality. That's never worked. It didn't work 5,000 years ago. It's not going to work now. We have to be in this reality. So how do you be in it and have a space that allows you to have some agency over your own consciousness while at the same time letting in everything that's happening. For me, poetry with its line breaks and its way of putting some air and space around things that are coming in from outside, things that are coming up from inside, that is a really amazing technology and it has no carbon footprint. I believe that all technologies are fundamentally ambivalent, so they can be used for good or ill, um, or like all medicines, it's a matter of dosage if it's going to cure or kill you. And there have been plenty of poets who were genocidal maniacs. So being a poet doesn't make you a good person, and practicing poetry won't protect you from the things about you that are dangerous, not by any stretch. But I do feel that it can break up some of the plaque that sits on the heart and some of the plaque that sits on language because the powerful are using language as a weapon every single day. I mean, if you just think about advertising, advertising is satanic poetry. And they wouldn't put so much money into it if it didn't work. So there are these all kinds of just dark mantras that are being pulsed into us at every second. And make no mistake, it's being done in language because language has that power. And if it, if it didn't, they wouldn't pay for it. So in order to get a grip on reality, you have to get a grip on language. If you can constitute yourself in language, you can do anything. And if you can constitute yourself in language, you might be able to do anything to somebody else, which may not be such a good thing, but it's part of the reality that we're, that we're living in. What I'm trying to tell you is I found myself crying sincere tears because I wanted someone and because I now, suddenly, it was 2012, had a home. I seldom had had one. And those moments when I want someone badly enough to weep and to do anything under the sun to make that person mine remain, it must be admitted, rare. My new book is called A Sand Book, and I always start with titles. I lied and said I was writing a book called The Cow for years before I started writing it. And same with Cœur de Lyon, which is the name of a, like, a brand of French cheese. And then Mercury um, also, I, the title comes first. So I knew that I was writing a sand book um, during Hurricane Sandy in New York in 2012. Sandra happens to be my mother's name. 
And A Sand Book is also the title of a short story by Borges, since we're in Argentina. Um, and to explain the premise of the book, it's, it's quite a large book. I think there's 13 sections in it. It's about 400-something pages. Two-thirds of the Earth's landmass is desertifying, um, which is to say becoming more arid. Um, and this, this is a process that's actually like the invisible killer of climate change. Um, this Rhodesian biologist, um, Alan Savory, says that even if we were to cease all fossil fuel consumption tomorrow, there were like nobody ever drove a car or burned any oil for fuel for any reason, the planet would still be desertifying. And there are all, are all of these fascinating conversations about what that process is and how to reverse it. But because I have a real interest in ancient poetry and ancient cultures, I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Um, Sumer, for example, the culture of ancient Sumer was eventually overtaken by the desert. Desertification killed the first um, writing civilization. Um, they had been a very urban, sophisticated culture, a matriarchal culture as well, and they had sustained a really huge population by irrigating the desert. And eventually they just overfarmed, and the fields collapsed and the culture collapsed, and that was that. And desert it remains. And the idea of the desert is this space that haunts mystical literature and literature itself. I mean, Christ, of course, goes to the desert. Moses and the Israelites spend 40 years in the desert. The idea of that space and what happens there really interests me. I know this is a long way to try to explain a book, but it's like, it's also this effort for me, thinking about sand and erosion it's also a way of thinking about something that is unthought and in some ways unthinkable. Sand is basically always a metaphor. It's a metaphor for time. It's a metaphor for infinity and un unquantifiability. And that's weird because it means that in some ways it's like the background of an idea that we can't really get clear on. And in a way, the way I see the book is like, it's like the negative space of reality, something happening to us right now, something happening to us all the time, somehow becomes the foreground, or that's, that was my impulse in this project. And for me, it's like what, what internet culture is doing to us. It's like we, we feel this thing happening all the time, and it's happening in the air right now. Like the space between us is filled with the internet, <laughs> and it's like there's like a million porns all around us, and like somebody's making a lot of money, you know, or seven corporations are making all the money. So there's this mystery happening that's 
apparently invisible, and yet it's affecting us on a cellular level constantly. Can you take seriously one at once so arch and so strange, so frank and yet so withholding? I'll wager that you can. And, but I am trying to escape from the problem of being taken seriously. And I'm trying to run away from ugly pictures of me, and I'm in flight from the burden of my homeless mother, which flight is married to my desire not to overthink how much I too extract from this ground and from the ones who have loved me, whose love I have failed to reciprocate adequately, even though I told myself I was lonely and that I needed it, the affection and the fucking, even the briefest of thoughts, if I wasn't going to dis disappear entirely like some forgotten minor god. The thoughts that think the mind in which they revolve are produced by the landscape through which we move. The first poem that I remember writing, um, I was seven years old. And at the time, I was really obsessed with ballet and music. I was sort of living in like a liquid state inside my body. And everything that I did came out of that. Um, and for some reason, one day, I was looking at the way the wind was blowing through the window, the open window, and it gave me like a very cliche impulse to write a poem about it. And I showed it to my mother. And I asked her if it was good. And she said no. And that was fascinating to me, because I had the kind of mom who thought everything I did was like amazing, you know? And later my mother um, became paranoid schizophrenic and there's another, that, that's like another piece, I guess, to maybe how I became a poet. But that initial impulse was so fascinating to me because she very seldom said anything critical about anything creative that I, that I did as a child. Very, 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 very seldom. And instead of being like hurt or like angry or something, I was so curious. I was like, what does that even mean? Like, and that was definitely the seed of it for me. And then, you know, I think I pro if I had had a happy family, I probably would have become a musician or a dancer, something more physical. And it's not to say that I wouldn't have been involved in language or like the plasticity of language, but I was like a weird animal. I was like a creature, like very, very not conscious of the, I guess, like the invisible mechanisms that make people behave the way they behave. And all of that sort of thing. I, I wore an eye patch as a child. I had a lot of eye operations. And I just like wasn't really aware of like external reality, I guess. I was just like flopping around and moving around and like existing in this more like amoeba type of state. And it was very ecstatic. I think it was a very happy childhood initially, even though I like had these messed up eyes and wore this eye patch and was probably like a very weird kid. And then um, the sort of, my family sort of fell apart. And what really did it, what really did it 
um, was my mom became homeless when I was 18. So it was my second year at college. And um, she and my brother showed up one day outside of my dormitory. They, were, they had nowhere to go. So they came and moved into my dorm room. And that did something to my relationship to literature and language in this way that was really mysterious. I always loved reading. I, like, I loved escape and imagination and play and everything. But something, it's hard to explain. It was like I was thrust into not just writing, but also I had this really profound, almost like penetrating experience of literature for the first time. It was like it was the only place I could go because I had no physical space from this catastrophe. And so something happened that was really weird. I still can't really understand it, but my body went into language and, and the language came into me in this way that... Um, made it possible for me to survive. And it became something that I lived on, which is insane. I was encountering um, James Joyce for the first time, modern poetry, um, the American modernists. Um, I was also reading medieval French literature and this French sonneteer, Louise Labbé, who writes a lot about pain. And it was just this fascinating experience of what people have done with this insane sense of excess and incompleteness that they were experiencing. And the way that suddenly it was possible, like on a psychedelic level, to feel in a kaleidoscopic way just so much more than I knew was out there before that, if that makes any sense. I think, I think like every human being has these creative impulses and it's, it's essential to our existence. Um, it's, it's, it's identical to us. But there's something about in this like sort of fucked up world we live in, like what forces you to become an artist that at least for me, I can't speak for anybody else, like, I had to be pushed into it by, by circumstance. I would always be attracted to these things, but on a more kind of surface level. And I think also what, you, what I started noticing is that there were people in, who had lived on planet Earth that I could relate to, you know? And they weren't in my family, and they weren't, my immediate friends, and they weren't my surroundings, but they, they, were, they were people who had had an experience in their soul and of life and of whatever, joy and ecstasy and longing and all the rest of it that, that I knew in my cells, and that was intoxicating, you know? And, and it, it's like de devotion was like forced on me. You know, I went to a college that I couldn't afford so at the time, I was doing a lot of things to survive already. Um, I was working, I had a job on campus. I was working in the writing center. And I had um, 
two jobs at two restaurants. I was a hostess at one restaurant and a waitress at the other, and I was doing sex work at the time. So that's a lot. Um, that's a lot of work for somebody who's a full-time student already. And then when my mom and brother showed up, it, I think I didn't sleep the whole time. They were there for six weeks. Um, eventually the, the, the university sort of communicated with my housemates and said, you know, she has to leave. And I was in a state of moral emergency because I couldn't reject my own parent, but, I al but it was also um, crushing me. Um, paranoid schizophrenia is very strange because it comes out of a kind of poetic sensibility. And I guess my experience with talking to crazy people has taught me a lot about the way meaning becomes an ecstasy in itself. And I think that in my mother's case, she had inherited trauma from the Holocaust. Both of her parents were Holocaust survivors from Poland. But she also had absorbed a lot of confusing experience and some maybe abusive experience as a, as a professional woman in a kind of male-dominated field. So she had real experiences that she was basing what, what became like a huge, very convoluted worldview <laughs> that tormented her. But fundamentally, it's the ecstasy of meaning, of every single particle of your reality corresponding to some bigger and deeper truth. And, and that's, I, that's sort of identical with the impulse of poetry. Poetry, I think Baudelaire said, that he might have been talking about a painting, I forget, but it's been switched between painting and poetry. It's a machine that makes meaning. And, and because we live in an era that in, in which very powerful entities are always trying to transform the meaning of things and, and also to separate from the source whatever s real significance is in, is in our lived reality, it's actually a really urgent fight, the, the task of poetry. But it's on the edge of schizophrenia in a way. And I think, um, so that period was very scary because I, knew where I was, but I also knew that I was on the edge of where she was. And it was, it's like, you know, the meteor was very, very, very close. I can't explain it. It was a physical thing. I could feel my body, my cells entering the language that I was reading, and it held me. I was pursued by pigeons and doves with rings around their necks. I was pursued by dead, then living, then immaterial birds. I was beset by a capacity to see life and death as a range of colors. And that the colors of death, purple, and variegations of writhing humus and white and black, like the black and white that will fill the world if you press gently but insistently on your eyeballs, were simply deathly colors describing varieties of living and that there was, in fact, no such thing as death. And when I dove down below it, taking the form of an insect, 
and when I lay supine like a bug relaxing in the sun to describe what I had seen and how truth and falsehood were weirdly married to the spilled milk spattered across the heavens and in the basis of our turning cells, I also saw how though more loosely now than perhaps before, the net that would trap me inside my life still hung over me, over it, over us, over me and my naked, formless life itself as it had in the earlier years when I bled for weeks on end, when I never slept, when I allowed vicious things to be done to me, and when I in fact wished for them and invited them, I saw how I was held by the reflection in the screen of my computer when it was in the off position. And I saw what my phone saw of my face as rocks of sorrow and confusion were born in my cheeks and bloomed and died there, leaving serrated proof that the invisible world was real. I later had this experience again when I first read Proust when I was like 23. And like, I was on a train and there were these two old men on the train and they were both really sick and they had a lot of liquid in their lungs and they you could smell their bodies decaying and they're both coughing a lot and and it reminded me of my mother it reminded me of when she when her smell and her body was inside of my space um, she I gave her my bed I slept on the floor I remember the sound of her breathing she smoked a lot and I and I remember the smell of her body and both the sweet smell of my mother that I that I love that every child n knows I, I was in this like train compartment smelling these men's decaying bodies and and hearing their hearing them coughing and and suffering that combination of disgust and empathy that is really human and that in my blood probably goes back to people being packed into cattle cars and and shipped off to concentration camps and you're you're forced into this abject position where you both loathe the people around you you're hor you want to escape the disgusting terrifying death that they seem to be su suggesting is coming for you too that's why people avoid the sick and the insane and the miserable, because it's frightening. And it is frightening. You know, that's not superficial. It's frightening for a reason. It's understandable that we want to flee it. And I, but in my heart, I always had this desire to flee, but also this tremendous sense of, of heartbreak and responsibility. So I wanted to escape and not to escape. And what ended up holding me in that train compartment was Proust. It was really weird. I happened to be reading Proust at the time, and I just remember, again, having this sense that my entire being, like this wave, was like plunging into his sentences and being held there. And that's a, that's a mysterious experience. <laughs> you know, it's beyond just saying, oh, it's great literature, you know, oh, the sentences are unlike anything else, or, you know, whatever. You could say in some sort of more ordinary way of judging the quality of an artwork or saying, you know, what it is. No, it's something, it's something alive. And writing comes from deep in the body, really deep in the body.
but why am I trying to talk to you now in this of all media? Not because I've seen things no one can explain and for which no lineage credentialed me. Not because I wish to pass out of the world and managed to, or because I wished to pass back into it and was clemently received. Not because I know anything, though I might know something, or even because I'm burning with desire to make myself known to you at last in the secret place I've prepared for us. I was lucky to be going to a really fine university. I didn't have the money to go. It was a whole mess really being able to go, but I was getting the education that I wanted and I took that education by my will, by pure will. But also I was a teenager and the first poet that I had a really powerful experience of was Rambeau. I read Rambeau in high school and Rambeau is a powerful dose of the idea of liberty. You don't have to really understand it. I mean, I wouldn't claim to have understood it in high school. I don't necessarily claim to understand it now. It's just that when you read certain poets, it makes you want to be free. And it makes you want to have this consciousness as, as big as theirs is. And for me, for whatever reason, even though I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be a poet when I was first reading Rambo, I wanted that feeling of freedom. And he did something he called the systematic disorganization of the senses. And that's what I ended up doing in my way. You know, I wasn't, um, but you know, I was also, I'm also a woman. And, and so I wasn't, I, I wasn't like wallowing in filth and drugs in like a ditch somewhere. I also had to hold my shit together. I was a double of this world. And though I shrank from your gaze, stiffening, I know, visibly, when you aimed your thing at me, let the record show I caused my flesh to thicken to protect what you and your connivances and everything they presumed about who I was and what I wanted to buy and why would otherwise have dispersed, translated, moreover, into money for you and not for me, though money, gold as it is, was the least of what I sought. The first book was about the Holocaust and industrial slaughter of beef, uh, which, yeah, really happy, bright stuff. Um, Cœur de Lyon came at this moment when blogs were like a huge explosion, and it sort of mimics the tone of blog writing, so it has an apparent flatness, and um, and it's a it's like playing on medieval love poetry and it's a breakup book um, about like a kind of mediocre love affair and and the things that I was like thinking and feeling about it. And what was cool about that book for me was um, it actually renewed my faith in art. My in the first book, I think I was really against art. I was like in a like a punk rock rage stage, and I wanted to live in a society. I wanted to live in some kind of a holy society where art wouldn't be necessary and where people would actually be devoted to the to the truth and to goodness and whatever things that we created would be serving this total whole. That was my dream, and I I just thought that art was this bourgeois like 
superficial thing that like people used to impress each other, but it wasn't really deep or whatever. And then with Cardellion, I actually like sat my ass down and like made a work of art and it was fun and it was also liberating. It also liberated me from human suffering that I, you know, I was like feeling this minor heartbreak that very quickly was healed by the pleasure of what I was doing. And what I was doing was also kind of like philosophical and meditative. And so it taught me what art does, not like what it, what, what it can do for the artist, which is to make it possible to sort of put space around experience and examine it and play with it in ways that are not prescribed. So you can be both really careful and really free. And also it gives an experience to other people where that, for some reason, that's a book that people find very liberating. Because um, everyone knows what it's like to have a broken heart. And everyone knows what it's like to feel like you can't communicate with someone. And that no matter what you say, and no matter what they say, you can't get any kind of common ground. That's a universal problem. So, um, so it's, yeah, I think it's, it's a book that opened me up to some joy that I, that I didn't know was available. Um, and I guess in, in terms of breakthrough, I self-published that book and it, I did it right after, like, just a few months after my first book came out and people, I like made up the publisher and it was like the beginning of print on demand and I like tested out the cover so that it would look good with the cheap you know, components of it. And it, I like, I was really proud of the way I made it look. And, um, and people thought that it was like a real publisher. And they just like, it was my first time not being passive about an about something that I had created, I actually if I could, if if literature could work in a more DIY way, um, if it was like logistically possible, I would do that more because the, the joy of connecting to my readers at that time, um, like in a, in a more personal way was so exciting. It was so, so, so exciting. And, um, and people loved it. And I just hadn't known that that was possible. And um, right after my first book, my mother went to jail and my grandmother died. So. I didn't experience publishing a first book as like, and now my life is like totally new and different. It was like I, I published this book that I had poured my heart and soul into and my life just became shittier. <laughs> and that was really not fun. I might as well give you the lion's share of the grain from the land I now plow like an old surf, but I'm no different from anybody else. What we till now is spiritual, is cultural, immaterial, partaking nevertheless of pain, like what shimmers at my base, an obscure future even now exceeding all predictions as I write you. For me, poetry is at this intersection between speech and writing. That's where poetry lives. It has to be somehow in between. I came up through a tradition in New York, um, through the New York School, that involves a lot of poetry readings. And I was really shy with them at first, and I just 
whatever. I couldn't reconcile it. But it became something super valuable because you learn things about your poem when you when you present it to people that that's different from from what you learn reading it or having other people read it. And I really believe that like for poetry to feel alive, it can't just be on the page. But for poetry to be alive, it can't just be performance for me. It has to I like it to be right on the edge. And so it's dealing with the whole history of written language, but it also has to be dealing with all the crazy ways that people talk. So performing, it depends on the space, you know, it really depends on the vibe and you never want to do it at people. You want to do it for people. And because it's an intimate art, the beauty of it is that it's not about spectation and passivity. I don't want to be in that kind of a space. I don't want to just sit, have a bunch of people sitting there like waiting to get their spaghetti and meatballs. Like I want to be with people. And for me, that's what poetry is. And that's what performance should be. And if it goes well, that's what happens. Ariana Reigns was interviewed in Buenos Aires in 2018 by Christian Lund. The interview was edited by Roxanne Bakashirin Lerkesen. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world on the Louisiana Channel. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening.